From WERA 96.7 in Arlington, this is Formative Tracks, the show where we sit down with D.C. area musicians to talk about the top five songs that made them who they are. I'm Eliza Burkhan. Today on our show, we have Mary Jo Matea, who is a singer-songwriter in D.C. Welcome, Mary Jo. Thank you for having me. Uh, So let's start by talking about your history in the D.C. music scene. It looks like you are in or have been in at least five different groups. That's, uh, that is correct. Yeah. Okay. So go through them and um, tell us how you make time for them all and <laughs> and what's going on because they're not all the same genre either. Right. In fact, that's what keeps it interesting is that they're not all the same genre. So there's um, my eponymous band, um, Mary Jo Matea, which is, I would say, pop rock, um, pretty straight ahead uh, instrumentally, it's guitar, vo- uh, vocals, bass, drums, sometimes keyboards. Um, then there is color palette, which is like more of an electronic s- pop rock band. So there's a lot of like there's backing tracks involved in that, and it's a lot more it's a lot more modern and contemporary sounding. Um, there is Loy Loy, where I I play bass in that band, and that is a synth pop band that uses drum machines and and keyboards and then me on bass, and it's um, it's a very different sound altogether. (laughs) There is um, Two Dragons and a Cheetah, which is a two-piece grungy garage rock band, um, myself on guitar and vocals and a drummer. And then finally, Endless Winter, which is more of a, like, dark, gothy post-rock band, and um, my friend Josh Hunter is actually in three of those five with me. <laughs> All right. So, what are your what are your weeknights and weekends look like? Because I'm guessing you're doing a lot of performing or rehearsing or both. All of the above. Yeah, performance rehearsals that takes up a lot of my spare time. That's amazing. And you play how many instruments? Um, I play guitar, keyboard. Um, I, I, I can play bass. I, re- I don't like calling myself a bassist because I feel like that's an insult to actual bassists. <laughs> um, but I am able to play the bass, and I do play the bass from time to time in different music ensembles. Um, and then I'm a singer. So Okay. I always feel like female bassists need to be really proud because there's so few <laughs> of them. Like, yeah. I'm sure you do a, a, a fantastic job. Um, so you released an EP late last year, um, late 2019 and uh it was not your first but it was a new lineup or tell us about that yeah um it was the the first two eps that i released under the name mary Jo matea were more like standalone recording projects and i just recruited a an assortment of people and said hey i want to put these songs on a recording can you come to the studio and and basically play a part for me and that was that. And I actually didn't even perform those because I didn't have a real live band for a while. And within the last uh, year, two years, um, I've kind of developed this lineup now that's um, myself, Joshua Hunter on guitar, Eamon Donnelly on bass, and Scott Manley on drums. And the four of us have like very consistently been playing together and and writing together and recording together and so these this group of four people feels this ep feels different than the other projects for that reason it, it was a little a little more collaborative and um not so much of a hey i've got this song can you come and lay down some tracks right like a, a band right 
Yeah. Yeah. yeah versus yeah, like, like an actual like band using some session versus some something. hired guns. Yeah. Right, right, right. Okay. And it sounds uh, very reminiscent of 90s alt rock. Oh, you like, are not the first person who said okay. that. <laughs> I'm thinking like Letters to Cleo and yeah. Blur and Better Than Ezra, like that yep. type. So was that the intention? Or are you just like, we're just going to make some good music? It just, and... you know, it always just happens. It's not the intention. But I'm also not ashamed of it or upset about it, you know? Sure. It just happens nor, that way. Nor should you be. Well, yeah. let's hear a little of A New Normal. Thank you. 
Okay, so why the title A New Normal? A New Normal was a song that I wrote um, after the drummer from Two Dragons and a Cheetah had moved to Minnesota because we were ju- we were two-person band, so it's not necessarily like the band had to quote-unquote break up. It just meant we had to find a new way of doing things, and that was going to mean less frequently, obviously, but but also just the means by which we got together and and worked on songs and played shows was just going to change. And so it was like I had to find this new normal um, for that band and then also find a new normal for myself insofar as like, well, what am I going to do now that he's out in Minnesota? One of the things I did was I joined Color Ballad. <laughs> oh, okay. So when when was this time period? Uh, so he he kind of like he like quit his job and went on this like year long world tour ex you know project. Do people really do that? <laughs> he did that. Wow. And actually that's what the song The Other Side is about. Um, but we'll get to that. Um so yeah, he like quit his job and like traveled the world for a year. And when he got back, he ended up in Minnesota, which is where he's originally from. It's not like that random. <laughs> and um so that he so he left in October of twenty fifteen and so I guess it was like sometime in the winter of twenty sixteen that he was like, yeah, I think I'm going to be staying in Minnesota. <laughs> okay. And then you stumbled on Color Palette? Um, so Color Palette had played, um, or at least the pre- the precursors to Color Palette, which was a band called The Silver Liners and a band called Dance for the Dying. So Jane Meyer was in The Silver Liners and Josh Hunter was in Dance for the Dying. We all played a show, Color or uh, Two Dragons and a Cheetah played a show with those two bands. That's how I met those guys. Got it. And then they later formed Color Palette and had Two Dragons and a Cheetah play shows with Color Palette. And then when Joel, uh, the drummer for Two Dragons and Cheetah, left, um, and I was, like, hanging out with those guys, I was like, you know, you know what this music could really use is some female vocals. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> and, I, and I wasn't necessarily, I swear, I wasn't plugging myself necessarily. I really was just like, you know, I think that would add a lot to the sound. And then they were like, well, you should do it. And I was like, well, as it happens, I have some time now. <laughs> <laughs> a window in my schedule just opened up. That's right. Um, very cool. Yeah, and Janie Meyer, as you know, was on... He was on one of your first episodes. One. Yeah, it was fun talking about his favorite songs. Um, so did you grow up singing from an early age? Give us a little of your yeah. background as a vocalist. Um, vocalist, I started singing in choirs in um, middle school. So, um, and then from there, as I got into high school, I did like competitive classical vocal work competitive tell us yeah more. like so it's it's funny when you're not actually like in sports you play against another team or another opponent and then it's like somebody wins or whatever when you compete for vocals or theater or anything like that you're basically just competing against yourself or competing against a standard and there's like a panel of judges and they will rate you on a scale from like okay to, to excellent or whatever. I forgot what the designations are now. But then, you know, and then they'll give you like a narrative response like that evaluates your performance or whatever. And so you're just, you're shooting for those excellence. I think that excellent was the top. The top uh, yeah, now I know what you're talking about. Like yeah. in high school, there would mm-hmm. be these ratings. You could get a one, I think superior, two is excellent. Yeah. Da, 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 oh da. yeah, superior so, might be the... So you wouldn't necessarily be like going head to head with someone else, no, but if right. you were the only person in your school to get a one, yeah, you'd be yeah. like, well, I, I guess I'm yeah. the best thing. I do have a funny story though about classical vocal competition, which was that I learned a song in the language Catalan, which is um, what they speak in Catalonia. It's like 
not Spanish, it's not French, but it's in that region that's mm-hmm. between Spain and France. It's totally different language. I learned all of the pronunciations in that language to sing this song. I go, I perform, I get my results back later, and one of the judges said, your French needs work. <gasps> it was infuriating. That's infuriating. Infuriating. Yeah, like, because you're money singing in yeah, French. Yeah, hello. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Those panelists don't know what they're talking about. Um, okay, so you did some classical singing in high, middle high school, mm-hmm. and then how did you sort of segue over to, like, the pop and rock world? Uh, probably because I've been writing songs since I was like 13 or so. I wasn't always playing them for other people, but I was writing them and singing them for myself. And it was when I was in graduate school, I started actually like, I got the guts to play them in front of audiences. And um, so that was probably the first time I started singing in a more traditional singer songwriter style, you know, like pop, poppy, you know. And did you study music in college and graduate school? No, no. I've never really, like, formally studied music. Mm-hmm. In fact, I'm terrible at reading sheet music. I don't even really know my scales. <laughs> I mean, who needs to know their scales? I mean, yeah, it's not the most important thing. It's certainly helpful. Thing. It's helpful. Yeah. It is, it's helpful. Um, and then you just picked up guitar and bass along the way? Uh, yeah, I, I actually, piano was my first, first musical thing. My parents saw me like emulating you know that scene in big where they're dancing on the keyboard at fao schwartz and my parents saw me emulating on my little muppet baby's keyboard the heart and soul and they were like oh she's a musical genius we're going to enroll her (laughs) in piano lessons so i've been doing i took piano lessons since i was in like second or third grade and then it was um in early high school when i was like whoa i like rock music so i need to learn how to play guitar and um they there was a guitar class at my school, and they said, okay, you can take the class, but you need a guitar to take the class, and this is now going to be both your birthday and Christmas gift for the year. <laughs> and they bought me this really cheap pawn shop guitar, which is, in you know, now that I know things about instruments, is a piece of garbage. <laughs> but I still have it. At the it. time, it was probably... At the time, it was it the, the my prized possession, sure. you know? And I still do have it, even though I know that it is technically garbage. It's like... You know, it should just be firewood or something. <laughs> um, cool. And then what was your first band? Oh. Oh, my first band was called X Education. And we were a punk trio in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Okay. X, like the letter X or E-X? E-X. E-X. Okay. Yeah. Like, so my used dissert- to be educated and I are X educated. Right. So my dissertation when I was in graduate school was about sex education policy. Oh. And the band, this is kind of salacious, the band came together because I I had been married at the time, the drummer of that band had been married at the time, and our spouses had an affair with one another. (gasps) This is how we met. It's it's easier to talk about now, like, you know, 10 years later. Um, But we decided we were going to say we were ex- educated. (laughs) I get it. That's brilliant. That's so brilliant. It is pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. And where was the subject matter of your songs? Oh, of course. Yeah. Of course. There was a ton <laughs> like of the it. whole reason for the existence. Yeah. Um, wow. That's uh, that's one of the best band name explanations I've heard. <laughs> um, so let's hear a little of another song from your recent EP, mm-hmm. The Other Side.
So did you ever actually wake up in Venice and fall asleep in Rome? Uh, well, that's a song about Joel's trip around the world. Um, oh, yes, that you had me- mentioned before. Yeah, and, and I don't know if he actually woke up in Venice and fell asleep in Rome. That's a little poetic license. But he did often wake up in one city and go to sleep in a different one um, all over the world. I made, a, I made a music video, actually, that took all the pictures from his travels and like it was it was a glorified slideshow um but uh two dragons and a cheetah had a song called five by five and i made a music video using those pictures whatever and then at one point there is a segment where there's a globe and it has lines that connect all the cities he went to in order that took a long time to do especially to get it to fit in the like 10 second segment I needed it to fit into. <laughs> was he like touring the world as a performing musician or was no. he just sort of like, no, like he was eat, on a eat, quest. Eat, pray, love type of. Yes, it was okay. an eat, pray, love type deal. Okay. Um, I wonder what we referenced before that book existed. That's right. These types of. Yeah. He was just on an existential journey. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cool. Okay. And then I understand that you are performing something live in the studio today. I think I am. Great. So tell us a little bit about that song before we hear it. Uh, that's a song called Delaware, which was inspired by my favorite movie, which happens to be Wayne's World. <laughs> and there's that scene where they're in front of a green screen and saying, oh, we're going to go to all these cool places like New York and we're going to go here and we're going to do this. And and then they're like, 
or you can be magically whisked away to Delaware. And then they don't know what to say. <laughs> so like they're just like, pause. hi, I'm in <laughs> Delaware. <laughs> um, so that's where it started. Um, that's where the idea came from, because that is my favorite movie. And every time I drive through the state of Delaware, I have to say that. It's just a, a tick. Sure. I can't help myself. You're probably not the only one. I'm sure I'm not the only one. And so um, I think when my band was traveling back from New York and we passed through Delaware this most recent time, I jokingly said, guys, I'm going to write a song called Hi, I'm in Delaware. And everyone was like, do it. And so I did. And so then you did. Then I did. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's hear a little bit of Delaware. Hi, I'm in Delaware. And I'm just calling to say that I miss you. And all the stupid antics we'd get up to Things just haven't been the same But at the end of this tour I'm coming home Rolling down 95 with the windows down And the music up, we're adventuring In our own special way Do you remember watching Wayne's World on the couch? Reciting every single line We did that dumb stuff all the time Museum hopping, record shopping These were the things that made sense When did we stop? Getting magically whisked away When did we succumb to the mundane day-to-day? Hi, I'm in Delaware And I'm just calling to say that I miss you And all the stupid antics we'd get up to Things just haven't been the same But at the end of this tour I'm coming home da 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 So Mary Jo, we are going to uh, move to your top five songs now. 
Um, the first one that you picked was Title and Registration by Death Cab for Cutie. And you said you love how lead singer Ben Gibbard writes lyrics. Um, the ex- your exact words were, I long to see the world the way his lyrics reflect that he sees it. Yeah. So what do you mean by that? So Title and Registration um, is a song that starts off talking about the glove compartment in your car. And it, the first line of it is like the glove compartment isn't accurately named And he goes on to say, like, there's nothing inside it that's going to keep my hands warm, like what a glove would do, you know. And he he goes on to say, like, oh, it ends. it's actually there's these pictures of me and you that are in there. And that reminds me of this other thing. And and the title of the song, Title and Registration, is what actually goes in your glove compartment. So, I mean, it's just this brilliant, like, you have to you have to go around the circle a few times to get there. But it's just I was like, how is it that this man thinks about a, a, an old relationship that fizzled out and talks about it in terms of the glove compartment in his car. And, I mean, it's just so beautiful and so poetic. And this is just one example. That was just the first song I think I'd heard of theirs where that clicked for me, where I was just like, he's not really talking about a glove compartment. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, like, that's just the way, I mean, all of his songs are like that, and he's just so brilliant, and like I said, I wish I could see the world the way he sees it, so. Yeah, um, it's definitely uh, sort of an unexpected metaphor and a more interesting way of telling a story than just yeah. like, hey, I miss you, or, exactly. you know, we used to really have something, and now it's gone, and yeah. then your song's over. Yeah, and- I mean, just like the metaphors that he uses in his songs are like, they're they're so weird on the face of things but then as you get more into it you're just like oh that was so so perfect so apropos so amazing and yeah someday maybe i'll write a song like ben gibbard writes songs (laughs) you're listening to formative tracks here on wera 96.7 i'm eliza burkhan today in the studio we have singer songwriter mary joe matea your second song is is i mean Calling it epic would be an understatement, and I think it's a favorite of many. Um, you Ought to Know by mm-hmm. Alanis Morissette. Uh, so you said it came out when you were a freshman in high school, yep. and it was the first time you heard a woman, or, or at least a female vocalist, being really angry and angsty, and that ended up inspiring your own songwriting. Oh, absolutely. And, I mean, to, to be fair, she's obviously not the first woman sure. to be angsty and angry in music. But for someone who grew up when I grew up, that was the first time I'd heard something like that. And in the mid-90s, it just it, it was a stark contrast to a lot of music that, that was on MTV at the time or that I had heard on the radio. Um, and it just, it really, you know, no pun intended, struck a chord with me um, and was so hugely influential and that whole album Jaggy Little Pill which I believe turns 25 this year so I'm now like dating myself um that whole album is just like so much of her lyric writing is like autobiographical like she's just free writing it in a journal and then singing it straight from the page it feels like and that rawness is just it's just so it's so primal and it's so perfect and definitely definitely an inspiration not just to me I'm sure to so many so many female artists. <laughs> Do you feel like you have any songs in your catalog, either from those early days or now, that get to that <laughs> level of just like, I mean, she's she's so she's so angry and she's not going to take. Any, oh yeah, any I'm crap sure. Anymore. 
Yeah. I, I mean, I, it's hard to think of one off the top of my head, but I am sure that I have channeled that Alanis ethos <laughs> before. Yeah. All right. You also picked a praise course by Jimmy World. Uh, and said that you ended up listening <laughs> to this on repeat mm-hmm. in college. So mm-hmm. bring us back there. Like, what purpose did it serve in your life during that time? Um, so I went to this, like, hippy-dippy liberal arts college in Florida for undergrad. Um, it was called New College. And um, we had to write an undergraduate thesis as part of our requirements. And for whatever reason, I wrote mine usually between the hours of, like, 12 and 4 a.m. It's usually the best times <laughs> to write. And um, I, I think it was largely because there was no other distraction. Like, I couldn't go and watch TV or, or play video games or something because I would wake my roommates and I couldn't – there was no one else to talk to. So, like, that was what I did. And then for whatever reason, that song just, like, got me in writing mode. And I was able to just, like, crank it out. But I just – I would, like, put that song on repeat. And, yeah. Was it more of the lyrics or or just uh... – um, you know, just like the instrumentation. I'd and... say, yeah, I'd say it's like for that one, it's probably like the melody, the vibe. Mm-hmm. Um, the the words are are pretty powerful as well, but I'd say that f- why I wrote to it was probably more just the overall sound of it. So it's interesting that one of the songs that you find most inspiring is one that like sort of leads to a time that sounds pretty stressful, like <laughs> writing papers in the middle of the night. Well, I mean, like, you know, it, it's funny, like, in academia, I think when you write something, you feel like it's the most brilliant piece of literature or something ever of composed. Of course. And then years later, you're like, oh, that was terrible. I wish I could do it over again. I have my undergraduate thesis bound, and I, I, don't, I wouldn't even show it to anybody now. I'd just be too embarrassed. I mean, but don't you think that's how most people feel after they, like years after they write something? Yeah. I mean, but, but at least – so as a songwriter mm-hmm. – I'm sure there are songs in my catalog where I'm like, oh, I'm just embarrassed by that song. I wish I had never recorded that or something. But it seems to me that that happens far less often than it does with, like, academic writing for some reason. When I go back and, like, read stuff I wrote in college or whatever, I'm just like, I thought I was so talented. (laughs) And now I'm like, eh. Well, the nice thing with songs, too, is you can kind of repurpose them and reinterpret them Mm -hmm. over the years. Um, like I was just thinking, I almost went to see a Madonna concert because, you know, she's on tour. I'm hoping, I don't know if she's come to DC, if she comes to DC. Let me know. Clearly like, yeah, we got to go. But, um, just the idea of her performing songs from the 80s now, (laughs) like she's got to figure out how to put a fresh 2020 spin on those, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, whereas, like, a, a dissertation or something is a little yeah. more static. Yeah. Well, I remember also when I was writing a dissertation, when my advisor had, had to tell me, this is not your magnum opus. Just get it done. Right. Just get it done and move on so that you can write your magnum opus. Sure. Well, I think that's why so many people end up ABD because mm-hmm. they're like, oh, I just can't write my dissertation. Mm-hmm. Like, it's mm-hmm. like too much. And yeah, it's because you just, hard. like, feel compelled to and you put your standard, like, mm-hmm. Way ridiculously high. Okay, you also picked a song by a Canadian band, speaking of Canada, Metric. Ah, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, well, I mean, song... Alanis is Canadian. Right, I know. Like, there's a little <laughs> bit of a theme here. Um, <clears throat> so the song Satellite Mind, and you said it played, <laughs> played a role in your romantic life. Yeah, uh, that was another one that was, like, listened to on repeat, but for a very different reason. Okay. Have you ever seen um, Grey's Anatomy? 
I actually have not seen Greatest Anatomy, which is shocking because I love Patrick Dempsey in Can't Buy Me Love. <laughs> but um, I find Catherine Heigl, Hegel. Whatever. Oh, yeah, she's not in most well, of the show. She's okay. only in the first few I, seasons. I, I feel like she's a little bit annoying, and yeah. I think I just haven't been interested. But go ahead. Um, so the in the earlier seasons, one of the major relationships is actually a friendship between Christina Yang and Meredith Grey. And they have this thing where they, like, dance it out. And if, like, one of them is just, like, angry or frustrated or whatever, they're like, let's dance it out. Such and they, a great idea. They literally just, like, dance out their frustrations. And I totally did that with this song. But, but not with a Christina Yang. I just, it was just by myself in my house, like, just dancing it out because I had so much pent-up frustration over this relationship. Um, and that was the song that I was dancing around my house to. I'm picturing Jennifer Lawrence in American Hustle. You seen that? I saw it. I can't remember. The yeah, she puts about. on a song by Wings, and I, she might be vacuum or vacuuming or cleaning <laughs> or something. But she is like going nuts, dancing with the music. Probably. The I mean, everybody's got to do that at some yeah. point. Yeah, I mean, it's good therapy. Yeah, absolutely. You're moving yeah. your body. You're getting mm-hmm. your emotions out. It's um, way healthier than drugs. Right. I mean, <laughs> that's true. All right, your last song is by the Beatles, mm-hmm. but it's by no means their most famous song. Um, Things we said today which I think is off A Hard Day's Night. I think for so. A Hard Day's Night. Um, so you picked this in part due to um, its harmonic shifts. So how do you think that contributes to its strength as a song? Like, why did that appeal to you? Um, it, It's obviously, you know, like it's a Beatles song from 1964, like before they got super experimental, and yet somehow it's not a cookie-cutter 1964 pop song. Um, you know, it, it has these shifts from like major to minor keys, um, and it has like dynamic shifts and it's just, it's just an interesting song. Um, and it's one that every time it comes on, I, I sing along every word to it. Um, even though it's, I don't even think it was ever a B-side or anything, you know, I mean, like it's a, it's a, it's a deep cut for sure. But I mean, I'm a huge Beatles fan to, to, to say that they have been an inspiration to me would be the understatement of a century. Um, and I just, I decided, I was like, well, I have to put at least one Beatles song on this playlist. So why don't I pick one that's just kind of nobody else has probably ever picked this for a playlist before. <laughs> right. <laughs> and the lyric, remind me of the lyrical content. It's, it's, it's sort of like, um, you know, you and I can kind of say that we're going to stay together forever or whatever, but mm-hmm. like, it's but not these gonna... are just things we said today. Yeah. Like, years from now, mm-hmm. it's just going to be memories. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, it's interesting. Like, it sort of shows hints of where they're going, but they're yeah. still sort of stuck yeah. in there. I, th- I think that that's true of, a, like, a lot of the songs along the way leading up to, you know, Rubber Soul, which is where everybody says that's where it started. Rubber Soul Revolver is where it started to change. Um and I, I like to find the elements of it that happened before that mm-hmm. to say, like, you know, they were they were innovating long before people identified them as innovators, you know. And this is one example, I think. Sure. Thank you so much, Mary Jo, for coming into the studio That's today. Been my pleasure. This has been fun. Uh, same for me. How can listeners find your music if they're like, oh, I need to hear more Mary Jo Matea right now? Where do they go? <laughs> They can find it anywhere that um, music is available. It's on Apple Music, Spotify, Google Play, Amazon, et cetera, et cetera. 
And then I have a website, which is maryjoematea.com. And then all the regular socials is just slash Mary Jo Matea. <laughs> okay, perfect. Uh, well, that's it for us here on Formative Tracks. Be sure to follow us on social media, hear archived episodes wherever you get your podcasts, and tune in next week when we sit down with another DC area musician to talk about the top five songs that made them who they are. <laughs>